The title of my message this morning, anybody want to take a stab? What the title is? What? Unity? Unity? Yeah, that's a pretty good, pretty good guess. Of course, you got the notes, so you know. <laughs> um, a call to unity is, is or a call to biblical unity um, because that is, a, that is a, a very good, that's a very important statement there, a very important word in that statement, a call to biblical unity. What is unity? You say, that's a good, good question, David, tell us. <laughs> you tell me, what is unity? When you think of that word, what comes to your mind? I kind of posed this question a few weeks ago to one of the, the A&I groups that I was in, and, uh, and we got some answers, so feel free to throw those back out, even though you know they're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. What is unity? Come on. It's Sunday morning. You can talk. What? Joining together. Okay. She went technical on us. All right. Joining together. All right. Unity. What do we usually think of when we think of unity in the church? What, what, what words come to your mind? Agreement. Agreement, okay? A lot of times we think of, okay, we're, we're all on the same page, right? We've got the same, we've got the same goal or the same ideas, right? Yes. Fullness. Fullness, okay. Interesting. I don't know where to go with that, sorry. But, okay, yeah, fullness. What else? Support, Support. okay. What else? Nothing? Direction. What? Direction. Because direction. Direction? Because it's joined together. The same direction. Yeah. Okay. All right. The same direction. Uh, you guys are getting too good on me. Because usually what I would think of would be something like lack of conflict. Right? Or just getting along. You know, a lot of times when you, when you think about, especially in, in something like a church setting, those, that's really kind of what we, what we aim for, is it not? We just want to get along. We just want to have no conflict. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at just the first six verses. I know that's scary <laughs> if I'm only moving six verses at a time. But we're, we're going to look at just the first six verses of, of Ephesians chapter 4. And of course, we, we talked about this earlier uh, in our, in our uh, sermons, but Ephesians 4 is kind of where Paul takes a turn from talking about uh, theology and all these things that are, uh, you know, a little bit more heady to some of the practical application. And so we're, we're, we're making that turn here, and he's still going to do a little bit of, of the theology, but he's, going, he's about ready to take us into, okay, so now that we've talked about all this, let's, excuse me, let's apply it. All right, and so Paul, in doing that, gives us a call to what? To unity. After three chapters, which of course he didn't have chapters, but after, after the first half of this letter, he's written all these things that God has done, right? So quickly, what are some things that, that God has done? Chapters one through three. Okay, he's given us an inheritance, right? He created the church with Jews and Gentiles. He created the church with Jews and Gentiles, right? He's brought in those who did not deserve or were not promised the, uh, the blessings of Abraham, and he's grafted them in, right? Yes, absolutely. What else? He's reconciled us, right? Yes, made us alive in him because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? What else? That's, that's, that's a good group. <laughs> now, lots of things, right? I challenge you, go back through, reread chapters 1 through 3. All right, and just look at all the things that God has given us. We've we spent, I know I spent the first sermon on just the blessings that God's given us in the first half of chapter one. I mean, there's so many things that God has done for us. And Paul comes and, and he starts off chapter four with this statement, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul 
has just talked about all these great things that God has done for us, and he hits this transition with the word that he, he often uses in these transitions, uh, therefore, right? We see that quite a bit in Paul's writings. He gives us this, uh, this information, this theology, and then he says, therefore, because of all that, this is what you should do, right? And we're not going to talk about anything this morning that is earth-shattering. Um, I don't have anything for you this morning that, quite frankly, if you took the time to study it out, you probably wouldn't figure out on your own, all right? But that's one of the beautiful things about these types of passages is that Paul lays it out for us in a way that's very clear and easy to understand, in a way that we can actually put it into action. So as we look at this this morning, don't, don't tune it out just because it's simple to understand. Take it to heart. Because I think as we look at this and if we truly evaluate ourselves individually as families, as a church, we're going to see some areas that maybe we need to change in order to have true biblical unity. Have you ever had someone tell you how you should do something even though they've never done it themselves? Do you, do you enjoy people who don't know what they're talking about telling you what to do? <laughs> Probably not, right? Um, it, there's just something about listening to somebody who tells you how to do something and you know they have no experience in it. Do, do, you, have, do you have a lot of faith in what that person is telling you to do? Probably not, especially if it has to do with something like money. <laughs> you know, if, if you've got somebody, you've got your brother-in-law over here, you know, he's, why do we always say brother-in-law? He's the easy one to pick one. I don't, I don't know. But you've got the brother-in-law over here, you know, who thinks that you should invest in X company. And, and you're like, what do you know? You're, you're you know, $50,000 in debt and have, you know, can't even find a job. What's wrong? You know, why would I listen to you about money? We have a hard time listening to that. Um, it'd be like me trying to tell you how to make a sushi roll. Okay? That would not work because I've never made a sushi roll. In fact, I don't even like sushi. So I would probably tell you to take all the ingredients and put it in the trash. But that, that you're not going to get a whole lot of good information from me. You're not going to have a lot of faith in me telling you how to make a sushi roll. Now, if a, a famous... Sushi chef, I don't even know what they're called. I just call it that. Somebody can correct me later. Su no, it's not a sushi chef. That's, that's an underling. <laughs> a famous sushi chef, you know, who's got five restaurants open and he's got booming businesses and he's been doing it for 25 years. If he comes up to you and says, I'm going to show you how to make sushi, would you have faith in him showing you how to make sushi? Yeah, absolutely. He's got experience. He's got, he's got the title. He's got the education. He's got the experience. He, he, he's somebody that you can trust what they're saying. And I, and I find it interesting how Paul starts this passage. All right. The words that he uses, he's actually used this phrase a couple different times now in the book of Ephesians. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. And you know, he oftentimes we tend to kind of gloss over these things, do we not? You know, we look at the passage and we say, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, yada, 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 all right? And we, and we tend to not really stop and think, what is he actually saying here? What is he actually communicating here? Because remember, where is Paul? I gave you a hint. He's in prison, right? Sort of. He's in, uh, most likely, he's under house arrest, but basically in, in, in confinement. He's in prison, right? <clears throat> he's a prisoner, even, even in a house. And, uh, and why is he there? Did he kill somebody? Well, he did, but that was before he got saved, <laughs> right? Did he, did he steal things? Why, why is he in prison? Preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Right? What does he say? I therefore a prisoner, what? For the Lord. Right? He says, he's reminding them where he's at and why he's there. Why would that be significant? Because here he is. He's a man who has the title of an apostle. He's nearing the end of his life. He's been to Ephesus. He, he came and brought the gospel to Ephesus. 
and preached and was there for over two years. Um, they know him. They've, they've experienced him. They've seen that he knows what he's talking about. They've seen his lifestyle. And here he is again. He's saying, look, don't forget where I am. I'm a prisoner because of the gospel of Christ. I'm a prisoner because of the way that I have lived towards the Lord. See, he was somebody, not just because of the title of an apostle, but also because of the way that he lived his life. That when he says to them, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, it meant something. For me to walk up to you and say, this is how you build a sushi roll, means nothing. Because I probably just YouTubed it. <laughs> All right? But for Paul to come up and say, I am urging you, this is how you need to live. This is how you need to walk. Coming from what you know, we would probably arguably say is one of the greatest examples of Christian in the entire history of Christianity, wrote half of the New Testament, went all over the world spreading the gospel, not a perfect man, admittedly by himself, but yet a very godly man. A man who had not just the pedigree of a name, of a title, but he had the actions to back it up. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Because of what I have done, because I have done what I'm asking you to do, this is what you should do. Now, <clears throat> Paul's going to give us, I, I broke this up, I've got three C's for you. All right? Three C's, I broke this up. And the three C's, we've got the case for unity, the characteristics of unity, and the core of unity, all right? The case for unity, the characteristics of unity, and the core of unity. And Paul here starts with the case of unity. Why is this important? What is the big deal? Why should we care? Why is this concept of unity so important, Paul? And he says, not just because of my pedigree as an apostle, not just because of my life as someone who has walked it, who is imprisoned for the gospel of Christ, but also for another case. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling to which you have been called. What is the case that Paul is making? The case that Paul is making is that you have been called to something. You have been called to something. What is that calling that he's talking about? Any ideas? The gospel, all right? Yeah, plain and simple. Chapters one through three. That's what he's talking about. He said, you have been called to a calling and that calling is to be a child of God. That calling is, to, is everything that we just talked about, everything that you just threw out, that God has done for us. He has called us to that. And Paul says, look, because of what God has done in chapters one through three, everything that I've just told you, that's why he says, therefore, everything that I just told you, because of that, walk in a way that is worthy of it. And this morning, as I was praying, I said, you know, there's, there's nothing that we can do to pay God back. There's nothing that we can do that would ever make things equal, right? We can never get back on an equal plane with God because of what he's done for us. There's just no way. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves. And so because of that, in a sense, we kind of still owe a debt. The debt of sin has been paid, but now there's something that's required of us. There's a way that we should walk in order to be worthy of what he has given us. How much do we really value what God has done for us? How much do we really think about all those things that we've talked about over the last few weeks in chapters one through three? Yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about them now, but do we think about them even on a daily basis? Do we think about them when we make the choices that we make throughout our week, 
When we, when we think about the things that we're going to do, when we plan our week out, when we, when we make even those instantaneous, instantaneous choices, are we thinking, is this something that will cause me to walk in a way that is worthy of what God has called me to? Is that how we think? No, it's not. I'm just being honest here. For, for me, I don't think like that on a day-to-day basis. But that's what Paul's saying. He's saying there is a way of walking that is basically the way that is worthy of everything that God has done for us. Basically, there's only one response that we have to what God has done for us. And it's interesting that the thing that he calls us to, is it not? He calls us to be eager to maintain the unity, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But he's going to give us several characteristics of this, of this um, unity. You know, we, I asked the question, what is unity? You know, we got lots of different answers. Um, most of them, you know, good answers. Most of them, you know, we, we look at that and we put them together. We're like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That, that applies to biblical unity. Um, but these characteristics that Paul's going to bring up, they're almost prerequisites for unity. Because you can't have unity in any way, shape, or form without these, not biblical unity. Now, we, could, we can be unified around something, um, just go to political rally. <laughs> You'll see that pretty, pretty easily. All right, there, there are lots of people who get unified around a, a particular uh, person or around a particular subject. Um, and we could all come to church this morning and we can all be unified around this concept of being Liberty Hills Bible Church. But is that biblical unity? Is that what Paul's talking about when he's calling us to biblical unity? I, I don't think it is. Because really all that is, it's, it's a mental assent. It's a mental agreement to, what, to one thing or to several things. You know, we have our, we have our church covenant, right? And I'm not, I'm not, you know, downplaying the value of the church covenant. But if, if we are only rallying around a statement, then that's not true biblical unity. Especially if we're not actually living that statement out. And so Paul's going to tell us here what biblical unity looks like. What are the characteristics of biblical unity? And if we don't have even one of these, then we don't have true biblical unity. So what are they? He says, I urge you to walk in a manner of the worthy, a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with what? With all humility and gentleness. How many of you just lost right there? I'll raise my hand. Yeah. With all humility. Now, now, listen, he didn't say, look, guys, you need to try to be a little humble and treat people nice. All right? That's not what Paul said. What did he say? With all humility and gentleness. Think about that. All humility and gentleness. This is probably the the biggest struggle that we as humans have in everything. You know, pride is is really the root of most of our problems, is it not? James chapter 4 tells us that, you know, why do we have arguings and quarrels and, and fighting amongst ourselves? Why is that? It says, because of your pride and your selfishness. You know, you seek to have your own lust fulfilled. It's all about me. And, and we can even come into a church this morning and we can sit in our pews and we can sing our songs and we can listen to a sermon and we can even participate in, in the application time and be as proud as politicians. I'm picking on them this morning, apparently. All right? We can, we can do all these things that make us feel like we have unity. 
and yet miss the whole purpose of unity. Paul says the first thing you need to understand about biblical unity is it requires all humility and gentleness. Just take a minute and evaluate yourself and ask yourself, am I a humble person? Am I a humble person? And start just internally. Am I just, am I, am I, am I a humble person at all, period? You know, move to your family. Am I a humble person in my home? Am I a humble person in the church? Those are hard questions because quite frankly, I assume most of us probably lose the first one. This is hard. We've we've sat in um, in elders meetings and we've prayed for unity amongst ourselves. We've prayed for unity in the church and and at times we look out and it's like, man, we really feel unified. And you know when those times are? When there's nobody being proud. When there's nobody pushing for their own way. When there's nobody tooting their own horn. That's when we start to feel unity. Because unity requires humility. But not just humility. There's there's uh, an and there, right? It says with all humility and what? Gentleness. Uh, This yesterday, actually it's been a couple days now, um, my family, I'll say my family because I don't participate in it, (laughs) Um, just because I'm a jerk, but my family put up the Christmas tree and they put all the ornaments on there. We We don't do like this, you know, boutique Christmas tree, you know, where we have all this, the matching bulbs and everything like that. We have a family Christmas tree. It's a, it's a historical Christmas tree. It's a memory Christmas tree, right? So we have all the different ornaments from the kids, you know, growing up. And we have ornaments that kids have made. And we have fewer ornaments now, thanks to the three-year-old. Um, she doesn't, you know, she, she, she understands people saying to her, be gentle. She doesn't get what it means to be gentle, all right? We, we have a few less memories hanging on our tree at the moment because of the three-year-old. If I say the name, they'll turn around. So, um, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's part of growing up. We learn, you know, how to be gentle. We, we learn how to, how, to, how to treat things that are precious to us. We learn how to value those things because really gentleness is, is a, a part of valuing something, is it not? If you don't value something, you're not going to treat it gently. You know, if I don't value my vehicle, I'm not going to treat it gently. I should value my vehicle more. <laughs> you know, if I don't value those ornaments, I'm not going to treat them gently, just like the three-year-old doesn't. All right? If we don't value the body of Christ, if we don't value one another the way that God values us, then we won't be gentle. We won't treat one another with kindness. We won't treat one another in a way that God has called us to be treating one another. He's called us to be humble Yes, all humility. That's hard. That's hard because I want my way. That's hard because that person just rubs me the wrong way. You know, I don't really care if they're in our church. They rub me the wrong way, you know. That's not humility. That's not gentleness. He says, if you want to have true biblical unity, you have to have Humility, you have to be gentle. 
True spiritual unity is not found in a group of proud people. It's not found in a group of rough people. That sounds like a Trump rally. Proud rough people. (laughs) That's not true unity, folks. True unity is found in humility and gentleness. Is that how we treat one another? Is that how we rally around one another? Paul is reminding us that true unity can only be found when all parties involved lay aside their pride, lay aside their sense of rights, lay aside their titles and status, and come together, each esteeming the other as better than themselves in a kind and gentle way. Is that how you relate to the body? When you walk in here on Sunday morning, is it in a way that esteems others better than yourself? Is it in a way where you lay aside the things that are important to you, the things that you want to do, even your rights, in order to be gentle and humble towards others in the body? Is that your attitude this morning when you walked in? Paul says we can't even begin to have true unity as the body of Christ without humility and gentleness. He also includes another one. With patience. With patience. Those of you who are parents know this is a hard one. Right? It's hard to be patient when the children keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over when you just told them to stop. You know? Um, Even just this morning, (laughs) probably for many, um, there were times where you hopefully uh, were patient. Maybe you weren't, but it's hard. It's hard because they should know better, right? I already told them to stop doing that. Ever wonder if God feels like that? Look, I gave you a whole book. Why is this so hard, guys? Of course, we know, we know that he knows us. He knows our frame. He knows that we, you know, we're dust. He understands. He understands. But as, as human parents, you know, we look at our kids sometimes and it's just like, come on. Why can't you get this? And it's easy to become impatient. And when we become impatient, do we usually lash out in humility and and gentleness? That doesn't really go along with the word lash out, I don't think. No, when we're impatient, it's usually pretty harsh. It's pretty rough. Now, I'm not saying that we don't discipline, but being patient comes along with humility and gentleness. They work hand in hand. And you say, well, I don't have kids. (laughs) Or I didn't know we were talking about parenting this morning. We're not, we're talking about the body of Christ. Are you patient with other members of the body of Christ? Are you patient with people who rub you the wrong way? Are you patient with people who just don't seem to get what you're trying to, uh, what you're trying to communicate? As elders, are we patient with people as we seek to try to lead the church in a specific direction? And, and sometimes it, it works well and sometimes it doesn't. You know, are we patient? Are we patient with one another? Are we humble? Are we gentle? Are we patient? And then he brings in another piece that's kind of similar to patient. What is that? Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Colossians 3 kind of gives us some light on this statement, I think. It says in Colossians 3, 12 to 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Do we do that enough in the body of Christ? Are we truly patient with one another in the body of Christ? Are we truly forgiving one another in the body of Christ? How many churches have been split up because of two people who couldn't get along? Two people who created a rift, who caused people to take sides, who just couldn't fix the unity because one or both were not willing to bear with one another in love. This is getting more difficult. I mean, maybe you had the humility thing down, but now I've got to forgive everybody too. (laughs) It's hard. This is work. And Paul's saying, I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's only our duty to live like this as the body of Christ. Bearing with one another in love. And I love this word. He says, eager. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager. What does that word eager mean? You know, we've got Christmas coming very soon. There are probably some children, not in here because we're spiritual, you know, out there in the world, who are, who are just eager for Christmas to come, right? They're eager because they know they're going to get that whatever toy. I don't, I don't even know really what's popular anymore. You know, they're going to get this thing that they've been wanting. They're eager. They're, they're anxiously awaiting. They're, they're just, uh, it's the only thing that they can think about. They're, it's, all, it's just all up in here. It's, they're eager for it. Is that how we are towards biblical unity? Or is it just, well, if God's blessing us, we'll have biblical unity. Amen, brother. Paul says, I'm urging you to be eager to maintain the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. It's interesting how he says that, right? He says, I'm urging you to be eager to maintain the spirit of unity. I mean, the unity of the spirit. I'm sorry, split that. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. Why would he use the word maintain? When we were saved, who came to live inside of us? The Holy Spirit, right? As believers in Christ, we are already unified in the Spirit. We are already unified in the Spirit. But it's interesting, the word that he uses there, if I can find it in my notes, the word that he uses there, I think it's terao or tereo. I'll look it up later. <laughs> yes, tereo. It means to keep or to observe or to watch over or preserve. That's the idea that he's talking about here. He says, he says I urge you to be eager to preserve, to maintain, to protect, to keep the spirit or the unity of the Spirit. This is an active thing. We should be eager to do everything that we can to maintain, to keep, to protect this spirit of unity. Because we already have it, but we so quickly break it. At the moment of our salvation, we are unified with each and every other believer in the body of Christ. And yet so quickly, we turn on one another. So quickly, we are not eager to maintain that unity. We're not eager to keep that unity. And then I think it's interesting, he says, maintain the unity of the Spirit in what? In the bond of peace. The bond of peace. It goes back to James, right? Why are there wars and fighting among you? Because you're not living like this. You're not living like Paul tells us to do. We're not living as humble people, as people who are gentle to one another. We're not living as people who are patient with one another. We're not living as people who 
who are bearing with one another, who are willing to forgive, who are ready to forgive when we're, when we're offended. We're, that's not how we're living with one another. We're just trying to keep the status quo. We're just trying to make sure the church doesn't break up. You know, that's, that's not what he's talking about when he says maintain the spirit of unity, maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I don't know why I keep switching that. <laughs> Maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about so much more. He's talking about proactive living in a way where we are focused on that, in a way where we are desiring that, in a way that we are seeking after it, that we're working towards it. This is not just something that happens because we pray for it. Not that we shouldn't pray for it. Christ prayed for it. We keep running back to it, but John 17, right? Christ prayed that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. So it's not wrong to pray for it, but we have to understand there's a price we have to pay. There's work we have to do. We have to live in a way that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We have been called together as the body of Christ. Those are the characteristics that Paul gives us for what unity is. And then he's going to tell us what the core is. Because again, we do have to be unified by or around something, right? And we're unified by the Holy Spirit. But I think it's interesting that Paul then takes us through um, several core Theological truths, again. He then takes us through several things that our unity is based upon, that our unity is based around. Yes, we have these characteristics of unity. We have the call. We have, we have the cause because of what Christ has done. We should seek unity, and this is what it looks like. But what is it built on? What is the foundation of the unity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ in the body of Christ? Well, first of all, it's that, right? It's the body. I think it's interesting that each one of these foundation, foundational truths that Paul's going to lay for the, the, for the body of Christ, for the, for the unity in the body of Christ, each one of these is given to us as a singularity. Each one of these are individual. They're singular. And, and one of your questions, if you didn't look at it yet, is, you know, why is that important? So I'm not going to talk about it, all right? You talk about it, all right? But I think it's interesting that each of these things is a singular thing that he calls us to, he calls us to understand. The first thing is what? There's one body. I don't know about you, but I really don't think about this truth that often. There is one body of Christ. You're like, amen, brother, LHBC. <laughs> we are it. But is that not how we think? Is that not how we interact with other Christians? Is that not how we interact or don't interact with other churches? We are one body. Everyone who professes Jesus Christ as their Savior is a member of one body of Christ. And what have we done to it? We have allowed Satan to reach in through our pride and our arrogance and let us think that we know better than everybody else about many things that Scripture doesn't even talk about or that Scripture isn't clear about. And we have built up dividing lines and walls within the body of Christ that completely decimates Christ's prayer. Do you think about the body of Christ as more than Liberty Hills Bible Church? Do you treat the body of Christ as more than Liberty Hills Bible Church? Or is it all about us? 
Paul says, look, you need to remember this is a foundational truth of our unity in the body of Christ, and that is that there is one body. Now, hear me very clearly. Are there churches that are teaching heresy? Yes. I'm not calling us to just unite with everyone and let's all be good. All right? There are doctrinal truths and boundaries that we must adhere to, but let it be Scripture. Let it be Scripture. And not what I think Scripture says, not what I've put together from Scripture that I think it says, not what I want Scripture to say, but what Scripture says. And then all these things that we've talked about, how we are to relate within this group, are we doing that with others outside of the body of Christ in this location? Are we treating other Christians, other people who name the name of Christ the same way that we treat people here inside these four walls? If not, we don't understand unity in the body of Christ. Because Paul said there is one body. He moves on and he says there's one spirit. I think it's interesting. <clears throat> there's this hyphenated section, right? Right after this. What does it say? It says there is one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. What is he talking about? Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Where have we kind of seen these words related to the Holy Spirit before? I know because I preached it. <laughs> chapter 1. Chapter 1, he talks about in verses, I think it's 11. I didn't look it up. Uh, let's go back. Uh, starting verse 11, he says, In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that he who so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is what? The guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When I read this hyphenated phrase, I couldn't help but think of that. There's one body. All of us are part of the same body. Yes, we go to different churches. Yes, we believe in the autonomy of the local church. Yes, we, we believe that we have the right to, to organize the way that we seem best based on scripture, etc. But we're one body. And he says there's one spirit. You all, every single person in that one body has received the same one spirit. We all have the same Guarantee. We are all pricked by the same mind of God. We're unified. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one Spirit. There's not a Spirit over there for Pleasant Valley and a Spirit, you know, up there for Chandler Baptist and a spirit here for Liberty Hills Bible Church. There's not a spirit just for me and a spirit for Riley. I don't have more of the spirit than Russ does. We all have one spirit. We all have all of the spirit. It's all or nothing. And it's the same one. One spirit. And it's because he is what? He is the guarantee of our He's the guarantee of our hope. I think that's why Paul says it that way. He says, we have, there's one spirit. Just as you were called to what? One hope that belongs to your calling. You were called to be sons and daughters of the king. You were called to an inheritance that you really could never completely understand. And he's the guarantee of it. And there's only one, but you all have it because you're one in the body of Christ. There is one Lord, 
The word Lord is often used for the word master. We all have the same master. And he's not following a different master than I am. Unless he's in sin. Because I'm not in sin. No, I'm just kidding. One of us is if we're following two different masters. Because there's only one. There's only one Lord. There's only one person that we can follow. Who is that? Jesus Christ, right? He is our Lord. He is our master. There is one faith. We're going to talk about this next week when we talk about unity of the faith. And, and I'm trying not to talk about some of this stuff because we're going to talk about it next week and I'm running out of time. But uh, there, there's one faith. There are, there are certain things only in Scripture that we believe. And if we believe things outside of that, then we're wrong. Uh, the book of Galatians, Paul wrote to the Galatians and he says, why are you being, why are you being deceived? You're, you're believing another gospel that we preach. And he, he even goes on to say, even if an angel comes to you and preaches another gospel other than what you've been taught, it is wrong. There is one faith. And that is what we believe and that is what we follow. And that is what we find in Scripture. One faith. I'm moving quickly. I apologize. There's one baptism. But what about those that got baptized more than once? I got baptized more than once. Did I, did I mess it up? <laughs> what was baptism? Baptism was simply an outward sign, an outward way to show people that I truly am repenting. What is repenting? It's saying, I am not going this way, I am going this way. It is a change of direction. Is it, a, it is a change of mindset. It is saying, I am no longer doing this, I am now doing this. Baptism was just simply, really the way that they showed people back then. I, I don't think we really, we don't understand the, the, uh, the importance of baptism today. We don't really get it because we don't live in the same time frame they did. When you were baptized, that was a big thing. Because you were saying, I'm no longer, typically, I'm no longer following this person or this teaching. I'm now going to follow this person or this teaching. And that was a big thing because their whole societies, not just Jews, but Gentiles, were wrapped up in their religious beliefs. And for these Gentiles who he's talking to here at Ephesus, who, who were following uh, you know, multiple gods, the Romans had multiple gods, the Greeks had multiple gods, and, and we're going to get that here in a minute. It's going to say one God and Father, right? We're going to combine these two. Um, they're, following, they're following all these other gods, and here, when they become baptized, they're saying, I am, I am walking away from everything that I know that's religion, and I'm following this path. And many of them, because they displayed that through baptism, were ostracized, were kicked out. Not, not just of their families, many times even of their, their, their whole social network. They were alone, and all they had was the body of Christ. I don't think, you know, we, we follow the tradition, we see it as an ordinance of the church to follow in believers' baptism, but we don't really associate it the way they did. And Paul says there is one baptism, and that is the baptism when you say, I am no longer following this path, and I am following this path. That is a baptism of repentance. He's not saying you can only have one baptism. He's saying there's only one true one, and that's when you've turned from sin to the Savior. One God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Father of all, excuse me, who is over all and through all and in all. People believe a lot of things. People believe in multiple gods. People believe in no God. People believe that um, if they do well enough or pay enough money or something, someday they'll become a God. There's lots of different ideas about God, but Paul reminds us a foundation of our unity is that we believe in the one true God. He is before all. He is over all. He is working in everything that goes on. He is supreme. He is above all other false gods. He is the one true God. These are the foundations of our unity. These are the things that we rally around. 
These are the things that we are unified around. But we're not unified around them in a rally. We're not unified around them in shouting. We're not unified around them in, uh, in making a bunch of big, you know, speeches and, and, uh, and posts on Facebook about how bad everybody else is. That's not how we rally. That's not what unity looks like. We are unified around these core beliefs. But if we're truly unified, it looks like humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love, forgiveness. Is that how you are engaged with the body of Christ? Is that how you are engaged with the body of Christ in your family? Is that how you're engaged with the body of Christ here at Liberty Hills Bible Church? Is that how you're engaged with the body of Christ even outside of these walls? Are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Or is it just something that you're happy that there's no conflict? Well, must have been another good week at church. Nobody was angry at one another. That's not unity. There's so much more. And I pray that God shows us how to do that. Are any of us there? No. No. This is, this is, this is a path that we have to seek after for the rest of our life. None of us will ever be perfectly humble. None of us will ever be perfectly um, gracious, gentle. None of us will ever be perfectly loving and bearing and patient. But we can pursue it. We can work towards it. We can pray for God's strength to help us change. And when we do, then we as a church, globally and locally, will begin to understand what it looks like to have true biblical unity.